welcome to the Master of Divinity podcast. I fully expect you've spent the week chewing on the question of God's omnipotence, omniscience, and omnipresence. One can only cite the various statements from various religions that underline the fact that the God you think you know is unlikely to be God at all. The best we can do, and the most effective thing we can do, is to look to Jesus and see in him the outline of God. So to Jesus we now turn, the second person of the Trinity. We begin our look at Jesus through the words of St. Paul. It's important to note that St. Paul, the architect of the Christian faith, uh, never met the earthly Jesus. In many ways, this explains the early tension in the Christian church. One party, led by Jesus' disciples, oriented themselves to the synagogue, while Paul and his followers looked to the rest of the world. We can imagine that the impulse to say, yes, but I was there, was pretty strong, even compared to Paul's road to Damascus experience. Nevertheless, Paul continues undeterred, fueled through a convert's zeal, and able to travel freely throughout the Roman world. So it is in this context, zealous convert, frequent traveler, and friend of the non-Jew, that Paul writes his letters. They frame Christianity, and do so in a way that the Gospels do not. The Gospels tell a story, but Paul makes an argument. Paul's argument begins with the quote we gave so much attention to last week. Jesus is the visible image of an invisible God. If you want to understand God, look to Jesus. In some ways, this statement is ironic, seeing that Paul tells us very little about Jesus, at least in comparison to the four gospel writers. Nevertheless, Paul insists that the code to unlock the secrets of God is found in Jesus. This code will be our Dan Brown-like starting point. We started down this path last week when we looked at places in Scripture where Jesus described God based on the familiar name Father. The passages were chosen somewhat randomly, the only connection being the use of the proper noun. In each, we were given a glimpse of God from the unique perspective of Jesus. The thread throughout was omniscience, the assurance that every hair on your head is numbered and God sees the little sparrow fall. But before we get lost again in a deep philosophical argument, it might be possible to recast the idea of an all-knowing God into a God that wants a relationship. Creation, covenant, law, exile, and return all point to a God that is primarily concerned about having a relationship with God's people. This relational God, then, no longer alone in the universe, longs for more. Blessing, judgment, punishment, these are the themes of a transcendent God, uh, literally lording over his people. Uh, Direct experience, the, the real stuff of human life, is missing insofar as God has not walked a mile in our shoes. Enter Jesus. In A Song of Faith, it reads, We find God made known in Jesus of Nazareth, so that we sing of God the Christ, the Holy One, embodied. 
So a question, can you think of other signs that God wants a relationship with us? Take a moment, if you wish. The late Marcus Borg, noted professor and author, described an opportunity he had to speak about Jesus on the Today Show. He knew his time was limited, so he decided to compose a one-minute summary of Jesus. And as I read it, I, I want you to note things that move you and things that leave you cold. This is what he said. Jesus was a peasant, which tells us about his social class. Clearly, he was brilliant. His use of language was remarkable and poetic, filled with images and stories. He had a metaphoric mind. He was not an ascetic, but world-affirming, with a zest for life. There was a social-political passion in him, like a Gandhi or a Martin Luther King Jr. He challenged the domination system of his day. He was a religious ecstatic, a Jewish mystic, if you will, for whom God was an experiential reality. As such, he was also a healer, and there seems to have been a spiritual presence around him, like that reported of St. Francis or the Dalai Lama. And I suggest that, as a figure of history, he was an ambiguous figure. You could experience him and conclude that he was insane, as his family did, or that he was simply eccentric, or that he was a dangerous threat, or you could conclude that he was filled with the Spirit of God. End quote. As you think about my hot or cold question, uh, add this. Is there anything you might add? Pause for a moment, if you wish. I highlight the Marcus Borg quote because he seems to come closest to providing the best summary of the earthly ministry of Jesus. And so we turn now to his theory of the pre- and post-Easter Jesus, a helpful way, I think, to understand the way in which Jesus in the Gospels and Jesus in contemporary belief can be reconciled. In a nutshell, Borg argues that only by drawing a line between the Jesus of history and the Jesus of Christian tradition can we fully understand and appreciate either. Various statements of the past and creeds and traditional theology tend to stretch Jesus in both belief and understanding. Faith may be undermined, then, unless we can see the way Jesus develops through time. The minute he shared on the Today Show is a distillation of what we can say about the pre-Easter Jesus. Storyteller, activist, mystic, and healer, Borg's summary picks up the main themes in the first three Gospels and strips away the material uh, where they try too hard, for example, putting him in the line of King David. Also, he removes an emphasis on the supernatural miracles of Jesus found in the first three Gospels, but lifts up his gift for healing. To describe the post-Easter Jesus, we need only to point to Luke 24. In the passage, we call the road to Emmaus, the risen Christ happens upon two followers, busy discussing the recent events of Christ's passion. They do not recognize him. In the guise of a stranger, he asks them about their conversation, and they say, Are you the only one unaware of the things that have happened in Jerusalem? So the followers tell him the story. 
the chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him, but we had hope that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all of this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. And then the twist. How foolish you are, Jesus said, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophet, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village in which they were going, Jesus continued on his way as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Again, we call this story The Road to Emmaus. Check the website, uh, p2.ca slash podcast, um, for a link to a wonderful painting, uh, Caravaggio's Supper at Emmaus, which gives the artist's impression of the moment that Jesus' identity is revealed, and perhaps a second before he disappears. Note the fresh-faced Jesus, more in line with how Jesus is represented prior to the Middle Ages, before the church turned the Nazarene into a younger Zeus. And on that topic, check the website also for an interesting article on Jesus' appearance that appeared on the BBC website. One of the helpful aspects of a modern creedal statement, such as a song of faith, is that it translates scripture into a summary of belief, a condensed version of several important scripture passages, such as Luke 24. So here is part of the statement. The risen Christ lives today, present to us and a source of our hope, in response to who Jesus was and to all he did and taught in his life, death, and resurrection, and to his continuing presence with us through the Spirit, we celebrate him as the Word made flesh, the one in whom God and humanity are perfectly joined, the transformation of our lives, the Christ. It would be no exaggeration to say that the concepts lifted up in these 11 lines from A Song of Faith, have filled thousands of volumes of theology. Every major thinker from St. Paul to the latest thinker, published in one of 4,000 scholarly journals, has tried to make the meaning of these words plain. In the time we have left, I want to lift up three themes that we cannot leave unexamined, though there are others. In looking at only three, I'm choosing to narrow our focus as we attempt to gaze on the post-Easter Jesus, the Jesus that develops as the Christian church develops. I want to focus on the mystery of the visitor on the road to Emmaus and how this experience of the risen Christ became a reality in the life of the church. To set the scene for this, however, 
we need to begin at the beginning and introduce our first concept. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's from the first chapter of John, what's commonly referred to as John's prelude. The Word, the Christ, pre-exists with God, present at the very moment of creation, co-author of all that is. Jesus describes the shape of this relationship when he says, I and the Father are one, from John 10. He also insists the Father is greater than I, John 14, but there's no doubt that at the resurrection he is returning to the Father to reclaim a place at God's side. This concept of the word, in Greek logos, develops in both Hellenistic and Jewish thought. In Psalm 33, the psalmist writes, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. The Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, uses logos to describe the word of the Lord, and there's also an echo in Genesis as God speaks the world into being. Indeed, the first big challenge to the church comes from a fellow named Arian, who insists that the Christ is subordinate, a heresy that became the focus of the First Council of Nicaea in 325. The second concept is commonly called the atonement, the way in which God and humanity are reconciled. It is the substance of Jesus' lesson at Emmaus. And such a simple definition, the way in which God and humanity are reconciled, is a bit misleading, since this again is one of the places where much ink has been spilled. How atonement works, why it matters, even if it exists, is the subject of much debate. I'll look quickly at three theories of the atonement and let you decide on the above questions. St. Anselm, from the 11th century, starts us off with his satisfaction theory. Humanity's sin is great and must somehow be answered. God's great sorrow, according to Anselm, can only be mitigated by the perfect sacrifice, someone without sin and utterly blameless. It is Christ's death on the cross and the mystery of the atonement that satisfies God and sets things right. Peter Abelard, writing in the 12th century, departs from Anselm and describes the moral influence theory of the atonement, which works like this. The life and teachings of Jesus, uh, but particularly the story of his death and resurrection, can in and of itself turn hearts of stone into hearts of flesh, alive with love and mercy. In John fifteen thirteen, uh, we hear these words, Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Christ's willingness to die, his death, and the miracle of the resurrection can transform us. Finally, Gustav Allen, uh, writing in the 20th century, was uh, the author of the Christus Victor theory, a theory that he insisted predates both Anselm and Abelard and best describes the atonement. The death and resurrection of Jesus is essentially a cosmic concept whereby God and the devil struggle and God emerges the victor. Christ died, 
but could not ultimately be killed, and therefore God wins. So a question. Do any of these theories make sense to you, resonate with you? Take a moment to pause if you wish. The final concept for this episode also comes from Emmaus, the the way in which Jesus appears in the breaking of bread. He is the Word made flesh, present to the church in the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. So how is he present, and how is he present to us, the church? Again, we turn to St. Paul. He writes, The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not a communion in the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not a communion in the body of Christ? That's from 1 Corinthians 10. And the church, from the very beginning, has said yes. Indeed, the very name we tend to use most often to describe the Eucharist, that is, communion, means a body of believers joined together. It is the Lord's Supper that feeds us and brings us together, making us one. On the topic of sacramental theology, and in particular how believers understand communion, there's a wide spectrum of views. For Orthodox and Roman Catholics, Christ is actually present in the bread and wine, called transubstantiation. Lutherans speak of sacramental union, whereby Christ is present in, with, and under the elements of bread and wine. And finally, in Reformed theology, including the United Church and Anglican traditions, Christ is present through the Spirit and not in a literal sense. All of these can be found in the Emmaus story, strengthening the mystery of that remarkable moment. We may not know how exactly, but most would agree he's there. So that takes us to the end of our second episode in Systematics. Next week, we look at the Holy Spirit and the way it animates the Church. Thank you for joining me.